it's probably safe to say that we live in the most materialistic society ever. There's always been a problem with uh, greed, but people have never been so caught up in the desire for things. One sociologist concluded that back in 1900, there were 72 different things that people wanted, and they considered 18 of those to be essentials. And he said, today, that list is over 500 different things that people want, and they consider 100 of those to be essentials. We just cannot do without. And one reason we're so materialistic is that we see our peers with things that we can't afford, and we naturally want to own them. Because someone said, it's difficult to save money when your neighbor is buying all these things that you can't afford. And it's so true. And another reason is that we're exposed to so much advertising. Digital media tells us that there, we are exposed to anywhere from 4,000 to 10,000 commercials or advertisements each day. You still see billboard ads. I noticed one yesterday as I was driving along the Bedford Highway. And then we still get our print ads in magazine and newspaper. There are ads on TV, but now it's Google ads, it's Facebook ads, it's ads on your phone. Uh, The desire to possess these items is stimulated every day. I have a TSN, Sports Network, app on my phone. And just this morning, I was checking the scores from hockey last night, and up comes that Potato wedges advertisement. Somehow I've pushed a button, so that just is the first thing I see every time. So I'll likely be going and buying some McCain's potato wedges later today. <laughs> That's right. Good. And then I, uh, I get my scriptures that I copy and paste for my messages from a site called Bible... She's throwing me all off here. <laughs> BibleGateway.com. And apparently, one time I was on there looking up some scripture, I also went to cargurus.com. My son-in-law and daughter were looking at buying a Kia Sorento, and I thought, well, I'll just check these cars out. Now, every time I go into Bible Gateway, Kia Sorentos, Kia Sorentos. So if you see one parked in my driveway, (laughs) I've given in to all of that. We're also materialistic because in our culture, possessions are the primary means of self-worth. So when we ask, like, how much is he or she worth? We're not talking about what's the spiritual depth of this individual. We're talking how much is he or she worth financially. The way to gain status is to own the right things. It's to live in the right neighborhood. It's to eat at the right restaurants. But when you come to Jesus Christ, he changes your value system altogether. He just switches that all upside down. Because he said, beware of greed, for life does not consist of the abundance of things that one possesses. Back in Bible times, tax collecting was a despised profession. If someone took on that job, they were hated by the people because they were regarded as actually a traitor to Rome. But Zacchaeus, he chose that profession because he knew he could make a lot of money. 
But one day, Jesus singled out Zacchaeus, and he said, hey, I'm going to go to your house today. And at the end of that day, Zacchaeus made the decision to give half of everything that he had to the poor. And then he said, all those people that I cheated on their taxes, I'm going to give back four times what I took from them. So for a rich man to give away half of his possessions in a single day, that, that, that's outrageous according to our world's standards. But Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. So when Jesus Christ gets hold of your heart, there's always going to be a different attitude toward things. So we've been doing a series of teaching on the basics of the Christian life. And if we're going to do that, then we need to grasp this attitude toward things that we have. In the Bible, there are over 600 references to money. And we're going to look this morning at one of those. And it's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it's a section that speaks to both the common person and the rich person. So first of all, Paul speaks to those who have modest resources. And here's his message in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. So one of the ways to say thanks to God is just by having an attitude or a spirit of contentment about you. It's not always complaining about your circumstances. In Philippians 4, Verse 12, I know how to live when I am poor, Paul said, and I know how to live when I have plenty. I have learned the secret of being happy at any time in everything that happens. Now, there's certainly a big difference between being contented and being lazy. We had a young guy in our office this week. He lives and works down in Digby County. He works in a molding factory. And he said over the last three years, they have had a hundred different people start to work and not last one week. He said some of them, they even go on their first coffee break and they just keep going. They, They wanted a job, they wanted more money, but they didn't realize they actually had to do this physical labor. So I'm Etta here. They were more content to just do EI until it ran out and then go on social assistance. But 1 Timothy 6 says that God wants us to be like him. So God works, God is striving to save, and God creates. And we're told repeatedly in Scripture to make the most of our opportunities, to be diligent with our hands, to multiply the talents that he has given to us. So Paul says, be content with your circumstances, even if we don't have very much. If we have food and we have clothing, then he said we should be living a life of gratitude and contentment and don't compare your life to others. But most Christians will say, well, I don't want to be rich. I just want to be comfortable. I want to have enough so that I don't have to worry about paying bills. Like one man was asked whether he would rather be rich and miserable or poor and happy. And he thought about it for a minute and he said, I'd like to be semi-rich 
and moderately depressed. And that's the way a lot of people are. Like, oh, we, we just like to have a little more, and, and we'll give up some of our enjoyment in life in, in order to get that. So this passage has several suggestions for how you can be content when you don't have as much as the people around you. And remember, first of all, that possessions are temporary, these material possessions. In verse 7, we didn't bring anything into this world, and we won't take anything with us when we leave. That's what Paul says. Back in the late 1980s, there was a rich older woman who insisted that her car, a 1976 Cadillac, be buried with her. And you will see the picture up here. Look at this. Her husband had to go out and buy 14 grave uh, cemetery plots and have this vault built. It's 27 feet long, 12 feet wide, and, well, 6 feet deep, of course. And then the car and her casket were lowered in by a crane. Isn't that amazing? And for those of you who are young, my first car was in 1976, so that's how big that sucker was, like 25 feet long. It was like you took up the whole road, two parking spots everywhere you went. But the caption on this picture said she did take it with her, and they don't realize how wrong they were because She's not there. Like, her spirit is long gone, has left that body. And you can't do anything with a car that's buried in the ground. Like Job said, naked I came into this world, and naked I shall return. So possessions are temporary. So don't put much emphasis on material things that don't last Why should we be envious of those who have accumulated more when it's only temporary? Another reason to be content is to focus on what we do have and not on what we don't have. So in verse 8, Timothy was told, but if we have food and clothes, we will be satisfied with that. So Satan, he's an expert in sowing discontent. Adam and Eve had access to almost every tree in the Garden of Eden. They said, there's just that one in the middle that you can't eat from. But Satan started to work on Eve. Oh, come on now, that's not fair that you can't eat from every tree. And that stuff God told you about when you eat from that tree, that's just a lie. And eventually she gave in to all of that, and she and Adam ate from that tree because they were dissatisfied. So no matter how rich you are, there's going to be somebody else who has more or bigger or or more attractive. And if you focus on those things, you'll be miserable. 20 years ago, Mac Giffen gave me a free trip that he'd won in a hockey pool, free trip to Toronto for the weekend to watch a Blue Jays game. And his partner in the hockey pool also traveled a lot and didn't need the trip, so he gave it to his brother-in-law. So I went to Toronto with John Garden. And this guy, he was so handsome. Like, and he was, he was bigger, more muscular than I was, had a full head of hair, all this stuff that I could have just envied him for. But we had, had a great weekend. We don't need to focus on the things that we don't have because if we do, remember I said, it will make us miserable. And then recognize the danger of uncontrolled desires. So now we move down to verse 9. 
Those who want to become rich bring temptation to themselves and are caught in a trap. They want many foolish and harmful things that ruin and destroy people. The love of money causes all kinds of evil. Some people have left the faith because they wanted to get more money, but they have caused themselves much sorrow. Now, it's certainly not just the rich people that fall into that trap. You, you may be very poor and yet be very materialistic. People who want to get rich fall into a temptation and trap. They become workaholics and they neglect their family and their church. Or they take silly risks with their resources and lose everything. Or they'll even get into illegal schemes to try and make some money. They borrow for something that they can't afford and just dig a hole that they can't get out of. They pierce their spiritual sensitivity So be satisfied with what you have. Be generous with it and be grateful. And then the second part of this passage is addressed to those with abundant resources. And it begins with attitude. So verse 17. Command those who are rich with things of this world not to be proud. Now don't just sit back and relax and think, okay, this part of the message has no application to me whatsoever. I can take a break on this one because of biblical standards and in comparison to the rest of the world, if you are at or above the poverty line, that means that you have more than 95% of the world. You're in the top 5%. Charles Barkley is a retired multi-millionaire basketball player But when he was still playing, he was chastised by his mother for the person that he voted for as president of the U.S. His mother said, George Bush is the rich man's president. And he said, Mom, I am one of the rich people. You may not make a million a year, but you are the rich people. And the fact that you have more than some have is no basis for arrogance. God gave you the health the talent, the intelligence, and the opportunities to accomplish what you have. So whatever you have is only because of what God made possible for you. And don't become conceited either, thinking that you're better than someone else because you have more than they do. Because Jesus said a person's worth isn't based upon what they have. Because he spoke about a rich man in Luke chapter 12. And he referred to him as a fool because he had possessions, but he was poor toward God. He wouldn't give anything to God. So the future is uncertain. The economy can collapse. Your company can fold. The stock market could collapse. And here's an interesting statement in the second part of that 17th verse. Tell them to hope in God, not in their uncertain riches. God gives richly, excuse me, God richly gives us everything to enjoy. And when one of my daughters was younger, she came up to me, Daddy, I need an 18-speed mountain bike. And when your daughters come with that, Daddy, you kind of wilt a little bit. And I realized your sisters have a bike. She doesn't have one. So I got the money together and, and bought this bike. But she didn't ride it very much, and it ended up in the basement most of the time. And I was kind of disappointed because it became apparent she wasn't into biking. 
Uh, five years ago, Ian Dempsey challenged me to go in the Red Island relay race with him, and I was going to be doing a 27-kilometer bike race followed by a 10-kilometer run and then a 6-kilometer in a kayak. So I said, well, I better start training, and I didn't have a bike, so I got that old bike out. Half the gears didn't work. It's purple. It's a girl's bike. And... (laughs) I'm just pounding it up and down Kearney Lake Road, getting in shape for this bike race. But was I ever in shape riding an old mountain bike that doesn't really work? The tires are grabbing the road. When I got in the race, I just flew. (laughs) But then I bought my daughter other things like soccer cleats and shin pads and goalkeeper's gloves and various other things that were well used that she got very much enjoyment out of. And it thrilled me to see her enjoy them. Like God has given us so much out of his abundance and it thrills him to see us make use of those things. It thrills us when we become good stewards of what he entrusted to us and we're grateful to him. The Bible doesn't teach socialism. It doesn't say that everybody should have the same amount of money or the same amount of possessions. In the Old Testament, David his son Solomon, Joseph, they were heroes who were wealthy. In the New Testament, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, siblings that were very good friends of Jesus, and he stopped there every time he went through Bethany. They were wealthy enough to have a house big enough to house Jesus, the 12 disciples, and then all the other guests that would come in and listen to the teaching. Zacchaeus gave half, not all, of his money to those in need. But just as there's a fine line between contentment and laziness, there's a fine line between enjoyment and indulgence. We should be able to enjoy the abundance that God has given to us without feeling guilty, but we also shouldn't indulge ourselves extravagantly and ignore the needs of the people around us. Jesus told a story about a rich man who lived in luxury, and he ate extravagantly. And then there was this man who was begging for food from his table. And he wouldn't even allow the man to sit and eat with him. So that other man went and dug through the garbage cans to find what scraps that he could. And then Jesus went on to say that that rich man went to hell. First John three seventeen. Suppose someone has enough to live and sees a brother or sister in need but does not help then God's love is not living in that person. So if God has given you abundant resources and you see a picture of a child with a bloated stomach and you just feel nothing, then that's not good. Or you see people without a place to stay because a fire has wiped out their home and you don't care. Or you see a need for people to find salvation and you don't give to meet that need. How can the love of God be in you, is what he says. See, there's a second message in this passage for those with abundant resources. And that is that our actions ought to be generous and not greedy. So now we move into verse 18. Tell the rich people to do good, to be rich in doing good deeds, to be generous and ready to share. Now, you think that the more you make, the easier it's going to be to give. We would think, if I get 
$20,000 more a year. I'll give 10 of that away. But for some reason, that never works out. We just keep adding more and more expenses to our budget. I read about an associate pastor who was asked to speak at a local service club, but at the last minute he came down with a really bad flu. So he asked the lead guy to go and speak for him. And as the lead guy's driving there, he's thinking, you know, my associate's got a young family. He, he's probably relying on any honorarium he gets from this to buy groceries. So they'll likely give about $50. So I'll give half of that to him, even though he didn't go and speak. And he went, he spoke, and they gave him $150. And then he started thinking, wow, $75, that's a lot for me to give him. That's the first thought that went through his head. But he did give the $75. Now I'm thinking, if that was me, I would have given the whole 150 But that's me. God says, tell those who are rich not to put their trust in riches. Enjoy what I've put in your trust and be generous and be willing to share. So how much is generous? If you have a healthy income and you give 20 or $30 a week, is that generous? In the Old Testament, God commanded that 10% of everything the people earned be given back to God. In the New Testament, he said, give as you have been prospered. So God has loaned us this money and instructs us to be generous as a means of saying thank you. And if our gift to him is stingy, it's an indication that we aren't very grateful for what he has given to us. And then we need to be convicted about what we give. And I hope you give to various missions. I hope you give to charities. But look at what God says in Malachi 3.10. Bring to the storehouse a full tenth of what you earn, so there will be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord All-Powerful, and I will open the windows of heaven for you and pour out all the blessings you need. See, I interpret that to mean bring it to the church, to be distributed by the leadership of the church, the leadership, the elders, the trustees, the pastoral staff. We put together a budget. That's taken to our annual meeting and voted on by the congregation. But whenever you give your money, I hope that you're giving generously because that is part of growing in the Christian life. It's a tangible way of thanking the Lord, and it meets the needs of the church and also helps other financial needs. But I run into so many young pastors today and they say, well, you know, I don't want to preach on giving because the people will think I'm just asking them to give more money so that I can have a bigger salary. I say, no, you're asking them to give so that they can be blessed by God. We don't really know what that is until we start to give and realize the joy that we experience as a result of that. And when we give to others... But God's going to keep a record, and he'll reward us in heaven. So look at what verse 19 says. By doing that, they will be saving a treasure for themselves as a strong foundation for the future. Then they will be able to have the life that is true life. So we can't take it with us, but we can actually send it ahead of us. It's not the fact that we're going to send our money to heaven, But God measures our worth not by what we have, but by what we give. 
And in fact, he goes a little further by measuring the percentage we give away. In the Bible, there's an example that Jesus gave about a woman who went to the offering box in the temple, and she put what the Bible says was two mites in there, two small copper coins, just worth a few cents. And then there was this very rich religious leader, a Pharisee, and he goes over and he's dropping all the big coins in there. He gave some of his abundance. But Jesus said that that woman was commended because she gave all she had. So if we're going to grow as Christians, we have to be countercultural to this materialism going on around us. The Bible says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, but be changed by the renewing of your mind. So if we have modest means, we need to be content with what we have. If we've been blessed with abundance, then we humbly acknowledge that this all came from God and that we generously share what we have. Moody Monthly carried an inspirational story about Bill Borden. Bill Borden inherited millions from his parents who'd made a fortune in the Borden dairy products as well as in the stock market. And he was an outstanding leader and athlete at Yale University. And at the age of 25, he inherited what would be comparable today to $45 million. This was 1912. But he gave everything away. Like He'd become a Christian, and he was a very concerned young man about seeing people come to Christ. And his biggest concern was about the lost in China. So he became a missionary, and he wasn't married, so he decided, well, I won't need much money in the mission field. So he calculated very carefully and gave it all away. $100,000 to the National Bible Institute, $100,000 to Moody Bible Institute, 250000 to the China Inland Mission, $100,000 to a fund to be set up to help missionaries in retirement because many of them retire with nothing. And then when he'd given it all away, Borden headed overseas, and he got as far as Egypt. And after two months, he contracted spinal meningitis and died. And the people of the world thought that his life and fortune had been wasted. They said, what a shame, but not in light of God's economy and in light of eternity. If Bill Borden had lived, he would have died of old age by now, like on PEI, since that was brought up already. If he was still alive, he'd be 131 years old today, so he's not still alive. So if he had lived, though, what good would his money have been if he had hoarded it up and then willed it to some distant relatives who would have fought over it and then hoarded it up and then indulged in it? To Bill Borden, the most important thing in this world wasn't things. It was eternity. It was people. And that mattered more to him than anything that he could bring into his own life. So when he died, they found among his belongings a poem that his mother had given to him at the age of 17, and he had it folded up and inside his wallet. And here's what it said. This sums up what he'd done with his life. Just as I am thine own to be, friend of the one who lovest me. The old language is 1912. I consecrate myself to thee, 
O Jesus Christ, I come. In the glad mornings of my days, my life to give, my vows to pay, with no reserve and no delay, with all my heart I come. I would live ever in the light. I would work ever for the right. I would serve with all my might. Therefore, I come to thee, just as I am, young, strong, and free, to be the best that I can be. For truth and righteousness in thee, Lord of my life, I come. So there's a man who knew a wise investment in which he couldn't lose. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, he wants everything. He doesn't just want this one day of the week when we come together for worship. He wants all seven days of the week. And he doesn't just want 10% of your income, but he wants everything that you have to be used in accordance to his will. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ and say, Here I am, Lord. Use me however you think is right.